So reading from Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The next reading is Galatians chapter 5, which you'll find on page 826. And we're going to read from verse 16 of chapter 5. Okay, Galatians 5, verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Amen. Last night, the Sydney Opera House was packed. It was thousands of people had crowded into the Opera House in order to hear a talk. Uh, the talk was entitled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. The speaker was Christopher Hitchens, who's an atheist. He's an atheist whom a lot of people are listening to. At least 40,000 Australians and New Zealanders have purchased his book, which is called God is Not Great. Those sales figures will increase dramatically after this week, uh, as he's been in Australia. Uh, the talk from the Opera House was broadcast live on the City Morning Herald website uh, to a viewing audience of who knows how many people around the world. Uh, I, for one, watched it. Uh, but on Thursday night, uh, on a more mainstream, or what would you call it, outdated media, that is television, 
Uh, he was one of the guests on the ABC show Q&A. Did you any, anyone see that uh, with Tony Jones? Uh, there was no politicians on the panel this week. It was a great relief. Uh, but um, they invited Christopher Hitchens and a number of other people to uh, have a discussion about God, atheism and its um, impact on the world. Hitchens loves to debate. He particularly loves to debate people like you and me, people who believe that he's wrong, people who believe that God does exist. Um, and in uh, Friday's Herald, he said that when he debates against people like us, that there is there's one issue that Christians constantly uh, bring, to bring up uh, for discussion and put to him more than any other issue, and it's... It's the issue about morality. Uh, the issue is this. Christians tell him that morality is something which has been given to us by God. Uh, he says, and I quote, most believers believe that without religion that their children and even they would not know right from wrong. End of quote. Now what do you think about that? Uh, is that true or is it not true? Hitchens responds by asking two questions. This is his standard response to that issue. He says, firstly, to the Christians, name me one moral kindness or action or thought that a, or, or words that a, uh, that a believer in God can do because of their belief but which I, as an atheist, cannot do because of my belief. Just one moral word or action or thought or deed that a believer can do because of their faith that I, as an atheist, cannot do because of my atheism. And secondly, he says, can you think of one evil action done by a religious person? He claims that no one has been able to answer him Although last night at the Opera House he did say that once someone answered him with an answer which he thought was reasonable and uh, the person said uh, that you could not say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Well, what he's saying is this. He's saying that if a person who does not believe in God can do a good deed or if a person who does believe in God can do a bad deed, then he rests his case. He says that there is therefore no need for God in order for a person to be moral. So I put it to you, how would you answer that question? How would you answer an atheist or indeed any uh, non-Christian person who says to you that you don't need God in order to be moral and therefore it's, there's no need to believe that God exists uh, in order to be a moral person. I want to talk about that issue this morning and I want to do so by firstly uh, explaining the issue that the Christians put to Hitchens because he actually, when he describes it the way he does, has really erected a straw man, which is fairly e easy to attack. But this is the, the way that the argument really goes, and it's the moral argument for the existence of God. It goes like this. Let's assume, 
as, as we don't, but for argument's sake, let's assume for one moment that God does not exist. Now, if that is true, then what does that mean we are as humans? Well, the answer is that if God doesn't exist, then we are the product of an unguided evolutionary process which started many, many millions of years ago with the combination of amino acids and has simply developed progressively from there. Uh, what we are, therefore, is just a combination of chemicals which lives. Uh, to put it uh, crudely, we are just lumps of excited matter. Uh, we are conceived, we live, we die, and that's it. Uh, there is no creator God, there is no afterlife, there is no day of judgment. That's all that there is. And so the Christian would say that if, if that is the case, then why does it matter how anybody lives? Why does it matter why, how someone lives? Uh, if there is no creator, then why should one lump of excited matter have any right to tell another lump of excited matter how they should or shouldn't live if there is no creator? Now, atheists absolutely hate that argument. Um, they want to say, no, 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 no. They say that uh, we, uh, that firstly, um, that all Christians, uh, sorry, rather, that all humans have a sense of right or, or wrong, and the reason that we have a sense of right or wrong is not because we've been created by a creator God, but rather that uh, as a, it's a result of the evolutionary process that over millions of years that people who do good and societies that value good have tended to survive better than those who do bad. And so this you know, goodness, this moral gene has just been passed on through survival of the fittest and therefore that's why we all have a certain view as to what's right or what's wrong and you don't need God in order to know what's right or what's wrong. That's their argument. But it avoids the key question, doesn't it? If God does not exist, and if we are merely uncreated physical matter, then it doesn't matter how our morality has come about. The bottom line is then why should it matter how anyone lives? So... That's the argument that the Christians put forward. But secondly, let's take a look at what the Bible uh, really says about human morality. This is important because um, Christopher Hitchens and others like him, many other people like him, often misunderstand and I dare say sometimes understand but misrepresent what the Bible actually says about a whole range of issues. For example, last night at the Opera House, he was <clears throat> running down Christians and running down God, uh, saying that, the, that, that uh, the Bible says that God commanded Moses to command the Israelites to go into the land of Canaan and to rape all of the women inhabitants of that land. And thousands of people at the Opera House were clapping and cheering and all that sort of thing, believing that what he was saying is actually what the Bible says. 
which was palpably untrue. So what does the Bible say about this issue of morality? Well, Genesis chapter 3 is a great place to start. You might want to have that open in front of you because here we see what the Bible says about the very nature of how we know what is good and what is evil. Now, of course, uh, atheists are not great fans of the book of Genesis, so they would not take this as being a particularly valid uh, evidence in, their, in, their, in, the, in this particular argument. But if they're going to argue against the Bible, then they really ought to understand what the Bible is actually saying and, uh, and be able to convey that to people uh, correctly. In these passages in Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, God had created Adam. He had uh, placed Adam in the garden. And in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God allowed Adam the freedom to eat from any tree in the garden except for one. He was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if he did, what would happen? He would die. This is profoundly important. Uh, God had created Adam to rule over the world, but God would be the one who would determine what was right and what was wrong. Adam was to trust and to obey God. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil meant that Adam's obedience to God would be tested. Now, there's nothing special about the tree. The marketers like to promote it as being an apple tree and... Uh, you know, to eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is to somehow to eat an apple or it's usually connected with sex or something rather like that. There's nothing particularly special about the tree. It simply meant that Adam had a choice. Uh, his choice was to trust and obey God or to not trust and to not obey God. Simple choice. But in chapter 3, Satan moved in on Adam and his newly created wife Eve we see in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, that Satan is described as being crafty. Why was he crafty? Well, firstly, he misrepresented God. In verse 1, he asked, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God had said at all. God said you could eat of any tree except one. So he's wanting to make God out to seem unloving. Um, secondly, he calls God a liar. He, he said that, you know, if you ate from that tree, then you won't die whereas God had said that you would die. And thirdly, in verse 5, he makes God look selfish. Uh, he tells them that the reason that God doesn't want them to eat of the fruit of that tree is because God doesn't want them to be like him. God doesn't want them to know good and evil like God does. Well, that's a half-truth, really, isn't it? Uh, it's true that God didn't want them to be like him, knowing good and evil, but not because God was selfish. Well, rather, it was because of God's love. You see, to know good and evil means to be the one who decides what is good and evil, to be the one who decides what is right and what is wrong. And in verse 6, by plucking the fruit from the tree, they were making that very decision. They, not God, would decide what was right and what was wrong. Now, <clears throat> How do you see this played out in our uh, current society? Uh, <clears throat> this week, 
there's been another interesting um, and important issue about God and ethics which has been on the agenda for our society in New South Wales to consider. Uh, it's a, and it, and it, focus, it focuses around the teaching of scripture in state primary schools. Uh, currently, the, the law stipulates that the approved churches have the right to go into the state primary schools and to teach for, I think it's half an hour or 40 minutes every week, uh, to teach scripture. Uh, to teach books like the Bible. And uh, if, a, if a parent doesn't want their child to sit in on that lesson, then the parent has to write a note and that child can therefore be excluded from that class. Um, I coordinate all scripture teaching in state schools in uh, Port Macquarie and I can tell you that there's very few um, children who opt out Maybe in, in one class I teach, I think there's one child who opts out. And so it's probably about um, 5% of kids, at least in the town of Port Macquarie. But what about that 5%? Um, the newspapers, by the way, claim it's 80%. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, it's been proposed that students who don't do scripture should be given the option of uh, sitting in on a secular course in ethics instead. Uh, a course which teaches them how to be ethical without involving God. Now, the newspapers have been flooded with letters about this all week, um, both on both sides of the debate. Uh, one writer who was an atheist and who opposed scripture classes being taught uh, at all uh, she expressed that she thought that the ethics course was a good idea, as you'd expect. But then she went on to say that, that there's a problem, and the problem is that we can't really decide on what ethics and what morals to teach. Right? Uh, another writer also thought that it was a great idea. She thought scripture classes were good, but a secular course in ethics would be good as well. And she said the great thing about the secular course in ethics is that people who didn't want their kids to be taught about God could send their kids to that course and they could be taught great moral principles like the golden rule. Do unto others as you would do unto yourself. Uh, she didn't know that she was actually quoting scripture. So she's saying, well, give them scripture class or give them an ethics class, but it would probably be based on scripture. You know? that's, that's the issue. And it sort of illustrates the problem because... In our natural state, we are all like Adam and Eve. Uh, we, we reject God's authority. We want, we want to be the ones who determine what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is immoral, what is good and what is evil. Uh, but it means that morality is therefore determined by popular opinion. Right? Because there's no absolute standard of morality. Now, sometimes, indeed often, popular opinion about what's right and what's wrong will overlap with what God says is right and what's wrong. But it's still our opinion. Um, it's society determining what is right and what is wrong without reference to God. And so the way that that plays out is that if a particular attitude or a particular action is, uh, is something which most people think is right, then that's moral. 
Uh, however, if most people don't like that particular attitude or action, then that's considered to be immoral. Uh, it means that something which is considered to be moral in one society uh, may very well be completely considered to be immoral in a different society. And, and, it, cha and it happens in societies, in, in, even within an individual society, but over time. So that something which is considered to be completely moral now uh, might, be might have been considered to be immoral 30 years ago. Or something which we consider to be immoral now might be considered to be moral in 30 years' uh, time. Um, it's not hard to think of examples of that. Uh, you know, if you're an adult, then think back over the last 20 or 30 years of your life and think about uh, the things which have changed. Uh, an example would be sex before marriage. Uh, sex before marriage in our society is, complete, is considered to be moral. Uh, it, is, it is fine, it is okay. Uh, whereas 30, 40 years ago, it would have been considered immoral. It's just an example of uh, how morality without God is a shifting sand, that, that it, it has no anchor in absolute truth. It's simply a matter of opinion. Without, and so that without God, uh, one person's opinion really ought to be just as valid as another person's opinion. That's what Adam and Eve wanted, to be the ones who know good and evil. So that's the Bible's diagnosis of the problem. What, what, uh, but how does the Bible help us out of the problem? Uh, let's think for a, a moment or two about the Ten Commandments. Uh, people often think that the truly good person is the person who obeys the Ten Commandments. Uh, many atheists would agree with at least one or two of the Ten Commandments. Go through the Ten Commandments yourself and you'll notice <clears throat> that there's a whole stack of them that, which by definition an atheist would have to say that they object to. But at least uh, most atheists would agree with one or two of the Ten Commandments. But God didn't give us the Ten Commandments in order to make us good, did he? Uh, the Ten Commandments are there to actually help us to see just how much like Adam and Eve we really are. Um, you might think that you are a reasonably good person, but then uh, you line yourself up against the Ten Commandments and you take an honest look an honest evaluation of yourself against the Ten Commandments and you start to see that you're not so great after all. Uh, it's like, you know, you know uh, when something looks white, say for example a sheet of paper, it looks white until you match it up against something which is pure white and then you just see how grey it actually is. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Same with wall colours and that sort of thing. And that's why in Matthew chapter 5, um, Jesus takes the law and uses the law to show us how far short we fall of the law. So that in Matthew 5, Jesus says, well, any man who's looked at a woman lustfully, he's actually broken the commandment because he's lusted after her, he's committed adultery in his heart. Uh, or a person who... Uh, 
who hates someone has broken the law because they've murdered the person in their heart. Now, uh, Paul uh, expands on this and uh, confirms this in Galatians. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapters, uh, chapter 3 for a moment, and you find that on page 824. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 22 to 25, uh, Paul backs up this point by teaching us that the, the point of the commandments, the purpose of the commandments, is not to help us to be good and moral, but rather to expose just how, how much we in our morality our man-made, our human thoughts about what's right and what's wrong, just how much we in our morality fall short. Uh, it tells us, the law tells us, that we're actually all in a difficult predicament, that we've fallen short of God's standard and that we are subject to his punishment and that we therefore need a saviour. A saviour whom God has provided. Now let me say this, that the saving work of God in the gospel is the basis for all Christian morality. We see that in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to, tw uh, to 26. Uh, verse 24 captures the idea. Let me read that for you. In verse 24... Paul says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. We've crucified the sinful nature. You see, Adam and Eve wanted to be the ones who decided what was right and what was wrong. And that ethic, uh, an ethic is your foundational principle that has its expression in your morality, that ethic led to the type of morality that we see in verses 19 to 21. So Paul says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Now, you read through that and you say, well, hang on a moment, I'm not like that. I've never been to an orgy. Um, I've never been drunk. You know, it's not describing me. Um, well, to my shame, I have been drunk. Uh, it might not be describing you in that regard. But the question is, have you ever been immoral? Have you ever been selfish? Have you ever been angry? Now, it starts to hit home, doesn't it? It, it, because we're all in the same boat, Christopher Hitchens included. Uh, they say that he lives a hard living kind of life. His famous quote is, he says, Johnny Walker Black is the breakfast of champions. All right? And we're all in the same boat. But the gospel tells us that God the Son became a man and was crucified for all our sins. So in verse 24, 
Christians are people who have taken that old attitude which says I will determine what's right and what's wrong and they've put it to death. In the Q&A discussion on ABC TV this week, there was one of the other panellists was a lady who, uh, <clears throat> she, she actually didn't claim to be a Christian. She didn't say that she particularly believed in God. She, I think she described herself as being a lapsed Catholic. But uh, her work had uh, taken her, had meant that she had to, on occasions, visit the Villawood Detention Centre. And she got into an argument with Christopher Hitchens. Um, she was actually defending the God cause, although she didn't really believe in God. And she said that, you know, when I used to go to the Villawood Detention Centre in my work, there were other people there who were caring for the refugees. And she said to Christopher Hitchens, they were all people from the Christian churches, the Uniting Church, the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church. They were there helping people because of their belief in God. She said to him, I never saw anybody from the Humanist Society there helping out or the Fabian Society. Now, Christopher Hitchens <clears throat> responded by saying, well, let me tell you about some atheists who have done some good <laughs> and uh, he omitted to talk about Mao Zedong and Pol Pot and um, Stalin and so on. Uh, he referred to uh, people such as uh, Doctors Without Borders as being a humanist society and uh, Amnesty International and so on. And, and it was a little bit tit for tat, you know, I'll tell you some Christians have done some good things, I'll tell you some non-Christians have done some good things and so on. Although I think the lady was right, ultimately. But what Paul is talking about here in Galatians 5 is not about, you know, who does the better good deeds. He's talking about something which is qualitatively far superior, far different to that. It's not just about the good moral deeds which we might decide to do with or without God. It's about God changing who you are. It's about God changing your very character because of what Jesus has done. That you no longer want to live your way you no longer want to be the ruler over your life. You want to live God's way. And it goes against the grain, doesn't it? It uh, goes against the grain to put to death the old sinful nature and to replace it with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are matters of the heart. These are matters which transform you from the inside out and will be expressed by an immeasurable, countless good deeds that you will do. Friends, it is the gospel. It is the death of God the Son on the cross which gives us the power and the motivation to change. 
The best letter I read in the Herald this week didn't come from an atheist. It came from someone who actually teaches scripture week by week in school. And he's, he wrote in saying, I, I've been reading about this debate over the last couple of days. And he says, I, I reckon that the whole debate's actually become very confused. He said, because scripture teaching is not actually about teaching children to be ethical. He wrote, and I quote, What we teach is that when we fail ethically, as we all do, forgiveness and change are possible through the power of the risen Lord Jesus. He concluded by saying that is a far more potent message than any ethical instruction can ever give. It's true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you have not left us to our own will. You have not left us to be the ones who determine what is right and what is wrong. For we have seen where that has gotten us. We thank you, Father God, that uh, in Jesus uh, you have given us the, the reason, the motive and the power to uh, change our lives and to be transformed from the inside out. Father, we pray that uh, we would be committed to that process of change. Pray that you would strengthen us to do so by the power of your spirit. We pray that we would put off the old self and that we would put on that new character. And we pray that as we live in a secular society that people would be able to look at us and see the difference that you've made and be attracted to learn more about you. Help us to be faithful and godly ambassadors for yourself. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.